This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Matthew Waxman, who serves as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. They discuss the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, the rise of anti-Semitism on America's college campuses, and the impact of social media on the national conversation surrounding anti-Semitism and the war against Hamas. Matt Waxman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. Matt, you are the uh, professor of law at Columbia Law School and uh, chair of their national security law program, uh, a national security official during the Bush 43 administration. Uh, Of course, here we're here today to talk about anti-Semitism on college campuses. But before we get there, would love to actually have you outline a bit of your kind of area of academic expertise, uh, which is really about the laws of war and how that should inform our understanding of the Gaza war. And of course, that conflict has really been what's triggered uh, so much of the uh, drama on campuses and and this real spike in anti-Semitism. So let, let's start uh, really from from the academic perch where you you're speaking with us today at Columbia Law School and and give us some context on the laws of war and its relevance here. Sure, thanks, Roger. So the October seventh uh, attacks was unquestionably an unspeakable war crime. The massacring of civilians, the taking of hostages, rape, uh, abducting and killing babies, uh, committed with a a, a sadistic savagery, a genocidal intent. Uh, And it's not just the October 7th attacks. Uh, Thousands of rockets uh, Hamas has fired indiscriminately uh, at populated areas of, of Israel during that and since then. So Israel is justified in waging a self-defensive war on a massive scale. If international law didn't allow uh, uh, states to defend themselves in situations like this, the law would collapse. And the core idea then of the laws of war is a, a balance between military necessity or the need to wage war effectively and humanitarian considerations. And that I think really boils down to two basic principles to keep in mind, and you're going to hear a lot about them, uh, but they're often misapplied by media and commentators. Uh, The first is the principle of distinction, right? You can't deliberately target civilians. You must aim at, at military targets. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that civilians won't knowingly and incidentally be killed. You can't uh, deliberately target them. Uh, The second principle is proportionality. This is uh, not a comparison of body counts as some sort of eye for an eye. Uh, The principle here is that the expected civilian suffering of of, of an operation can't be excessive to the expected military gain. And we're talking here about trying to apply these rules to urban combat in one of the most densely populated uh, places on earth against an enemy uh, that has embedded itself underground beneath the civilian population and that commits the war crime after war crime of of using human shields to to deliberately put civilians in in harm's way. Let me make one last point, which is uh, that even as Israel wages a, a defensive war against an enemy that is grotesquely inhumane, 
we who support Israel must not lose our own humanity. And among other things, uh, that means uh, feeling and expressing sorrow, empathy for those many civilians in Gaza who are innocent and who are now suffering on a very large scale. So a lot to discuss there and unpack there, Matt. Uh, We'll we'll take a couple of minutes just so we understand some of the the points you made and the language you use. And then then we'll turn to the environment on campus. which seems to be another battlefield. And I, I use that word advisedly. I, it tr- really seems to be part of the battlefield here. Um, but as you described Hamas's vicious, cruel, barbaric attacks on October 7th, use the language of war crimes, use the language of genocidal intent, um, and the indiscriminate firing of rockets on Israeli sovereign territory, which, as it did this recording, is still happening, even with that's right. Uh, Israel's bombardment of Gaza uh, and their attempt to root out Hamas from Gaza. Um, talk to us about that language that 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 the the conduct is war crimes, that the intent is genocidal, uh, and that and that part of that is this indiscriminate uh, attack, meaning they're not distinguishing between. Uh, a legitimate air quotes there, uh, military target versus civilian populations. It really goes to the core of of not just Hamas's uh, strategy, ideology, uh, their supporters as well, uh, which would seem to have a different construct of what they think is 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 moral right. That's right. We're talking about a war here uh, between a rule of law country and uh, a terrorist enemy that deliberately tries to pervert uh, the law for its own gain. We're talking about a country, a state, a military, the IDF, uh, that tries to avoid uh, collateral damage, tries to avoid uh, civilian harm, though the law recognizes that in high-intensity combat operations, especially in a a densely populated area, tragically, uh, there is going to be a lot of uh, uh, human suffering, especially against an enemy that deliberately puts uh, civilians, its own civilians, in harm's way, uh, using human shields, burying its own uh, military resources, its own fighters directly beneath civilian sites. Uh, And so we're talking about uh, an asymmetry in the war in so many ways. None of this, though, absolves Israel from conducting its own operations in accordance with the law. Uh, That's important for a rule of law society. That's important morally. It's also important strategically. And we'll probably come back uh, to some of these issues as we we go along. The last thing I would just say here is that the principles I outlined, the basic principles of uh, the law of armed conflict are often misstated. Um, I think there's often a rush to judgment, uh, condemning Israel before all the facts are in, often with the comfortable benefit of hindsight. And I think generally, uh, Israel is often uh, held to a higher standard than than other advanced militaries. Uh, And here it's against an enemy that has, and I'll I'll say it again, unquestionably, unquestionably committed war crimes of the worst kind. 
Uh, one last point, and then we'll move into the environment on, on college campuses, both the one where, where, where you are and, and your observations across uh, the United States. But you're emphasizing proportionality, which you're right, gets bandied a lot, bandied about a lot by the commentariat, news organizations. You, the language you used earlier was it can't be excessive to the military gain, right? Um, and here, <laughs> just as here we are uh, over a month uh, since the, the war broke out on October 7th, the rockets are still flying into Israel, right? So, so, so if, the, if, the, if the military objective is to suppress, at the very least, uh, Hamas rockets from landing into Israeli sovereign territory, that, that is not done. So it'd be hard to argue somehow that, uh, to me, just very narrowly on that point alone, that somehow, um, you know, that, 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 that is excessive to the military gain, which is seeking, which is to, to have its civilian population not victim to these indiscriminate rockets. Is that, thinking, is that one application of it, or am I thinking about it the wrong way? No, no, I think you're getting it right. You know, uh, as I said from the beginning, uh, the laws of war try to balance military necessity and uh, humanitarian interests. Uh, and there's a proportionality calculus uh, to be made right up front. Is, uh, is a war of this kind uh, necessary and proportionate to the threat that uh, Israel is facing? And that threat is very severe. We're talking about uh, uh, the worst kind of violence perpetrated uh, uh, with, as I said before, with genocidal intent, uh, a clear intention by the enemy to try to continue that campaign of violence, uh, whether it's committing massacres, whether it's firing rockets indiscriminately, uh, making parts of Israel, even with defensive lines uh, reestablished, making large parts of Israel uninhabited, uh, and in conducting individual strikes, uh, Israel uh, needs to, the IDF needs to take into account the military necessity of taking out particular targets. And as I said before, it's easy in hindsight to judge differently the proportionality calculations that are made by the IDF. And I actually think reasonable people can disagree. Uh, getting those balances right is hard. There are certain balances that are easy to, to, to call, you know, to destroy an entire apartment complex to take out a, a single sniper, for example, would clearly be disproportionate. Uh, but uh, even in making and even in evaluating some of these strikes where there is room for disagreement, there is room, I would say, for uh, uh, criticism of Israel. Uh, there are different people who will make, especially in hindsight, different proportionality judgments. Um, but we are talking still about a military force that has a very robust and well-practiced system for complying with uh, the international law of armed conflict or the laws of war against an enemy that operates with a, a 
perverted uh, uh, effort, a perverted strategy that deliberately puts civilians in harm's way. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it seeks to to expose and, and, and exploit the seams of, of the law of armed conflict and international law uh, to their gain. And, and, and that, that's clearly the rationale for having command and control uh, headquarters underneath the hospital, for example, right, or, or, or transferring terrorist uh, units in ambulances. I mean, this is the sort of thing where it absolutely provokes and 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 uses the 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 shield of 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 civilians to accomplish its uh, military objectives, making it uh, almost impossible uh, for Israel either to to realize this military objective or 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 to win uh, what is the the, the public relations battle. Um, you know, and, and I'll just add, you know, war war is awful, and the international law rules are designed to make it less awful, but it's still going to be awful. Well, you have the arm, the, the, the war that broke out on October 7th, and and we've just had having discussion about kind of the doctrines and and, and elements of, of law of armed conflict. And as it, certainly as it relates to proportionality, Matt, you, you said, okay, reasonable people can di disagree. October 7th, shortly after on college campuses, including uh, Columbia University, uh, where you teach, actually, where I attended as an undergraduate, uh, it didn't seem to be an environment where there was, you know, this kind of thoughtful exchange of, of, of different views, but rather a full-on embrace in defense of Hamas's massacre. Uh, and here I'm not talking about just a marginal element. Of, of students, perhaps, but it seemed to be wider spread than that, uh, and not just one or two uh, uh, members of Columbia's faculty that somehow have a construct of any Israeli being a colonizer, in which case they're subhuman and then uh, could be legitimately a victim of, of a massacre, but actually uh, a defense of Hamas that ran deeper across institution uh, that emerged. Uh, this, of course, led many, including in my view, uh, that this wasn't just anti-Israel, this is anti-Semitic um, and the type of, 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 of outlook that would warrant uh, and support uh, in a genocide of Jews uh, on par with uh, being a Nazi and a Nazi sympathizer. Um, Matt, am I characterizing the response and the environment, both at, at, at the campus where you teach, but also across the country accurately, or is there some nuance I'm missing? Well, I don't want to generalize across all campuses, and I don't want to generalize uh, across all groups. Um, but I'll say uh, the situation is bad. It's it's very bad. Um, we know from organizations like the Anti Defamation League that nationwide, uh, since October seventh, uh, incidents of anti Semitism, uh, attacks, bigoted speech, uh, uh, vile anti-Semitic uh, uh, graffiti rallies, they're all up uh, by very large margins, and university campuses are seeing the same thing. Uh, none of this is to take away from Islamophobia and other forms of hatred as well, um, but Jewish students on campuses, Israeli students, uh, are facing uh, the kind of vile and offensive expression and acts that I have not seen before in my 16 years uh, on the faculty here. Um, and 
You know, since the October 7th attack, um, there were individual cases of faculty members across the country, um, individual ones uh, outright celebrating the Hamas attacks. These kinds of celebrations are obviously vile and disgusting, disgusting and it's, it's shocking uh, that any of these people would hold faculty positions. Uh, but much more generally, um, across the country, we've seen coalitions of campus organizations put out statements. Again, they're not all the same. But many shared some some similar themes and language. Uh, these included uh, not just groups uh, dedicated to uh, Palestinian rights, but other groups that are generally dedicated uh, to social justice or promoting the rights of, of other vulnerable or, or historically disadvantaged groups. Um, and uh, uh, some groups even that had nothing to do even remotely with Israel, nothing to do with Palestinians or Muslims or the Middle East. <laughs> Uh, and they've uh, tended to adopt, uh, I, I, they've been joined in a common narrative of oppressed versus oppressors. And among the messages that we see quite consistently uh, uh, advanced across the country uh, is things like uh, that Israel bears 100% responsibility for the pogroms that we saw on November 7th um, and claims that these are the somehow natural consequences of Israeli policies no matter uh, in, that are obviously a matter of, of, of considerable, considerable debate. Um, I'll, I'll pause there for a moment, but I, I'd like to try to address uh, some of those points directly. Yeah, I, well, I, I definitely want to get get into that, particularly uh, uh, the letter and the faculty reaction um, uh, signed by more than 100 uh, Columbia faculty. Um, Really adopting the, the, this outlook and 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 quote unquote contextualizing the attacks of October seventh, um, and ref really referring to the massacre that Hamas carried out on October seventh, which you rightly called the pogroms, uh, as some sort of uh, legitimate military action, given given that context. But but before we get there, Matt, I think it's important just for you. Uh, to to really parse the complicated subject, but enough for for this conversation between free speech and hate speech, or free speech and anti-Semitic speech, because you know what I heard embedded in, in in your last set of comments was, you know, there's always been a place for for free speech. Post you know October seventh, it has crossed that line uh, to something that. It's really beyond the pale for free speech. Maybe take a minute on that, and then we'll go into some of the specific uh, uh, arguments uh, and, and the sort of language that shocked me, Columbia faculty uh, signed up for. Yeah, good. Uh, you know, on, when it comes to free speech uh, and the kind of anti-Semitic speech uh, or hate speech that we've been been hearing across the country, my, my own starting point is I'm a big believer in campus free speech. I think that students should be exposed to speech uh, that makes them uncomfortable or even offends them in some instances. That's why they're at universities. Um, in fact, 
I do worry that one possible outcome of this is uh, that it's going to become even harder to have serious conversations about Israel um, on campus. And we need to have those serious conversations about what a, a, a just and lasting solution to uh, Israeli-Palestinian issues are, who's responsible for uh, the suffering in Gaza, questions like that that are, are difficult and are uncomfortable. Um, uh, but I generally don't want uh, university administrators or faculty trying to shut down certain expression, even if it offends. Uh, that's, that's my general starting point. Um, however, uh, with freedom of expression comes responsibility and students need to learn that too. Um, and since la uh, 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 the October 7th massacre, I called it a pogrom before, I think that's what it is, um, I've seen views expressed loudly and publicly on university campuses that, as you said, uh, in some cases, excuse Hamas's atrocities, basically saying it's Israel's fault or using uh, 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 sort of euphemisms that seek to, to justify it. Uh, as well as some that outright celebrates or, or glorifies Hamas's attack, and, and not just an, an attack, but a barbaric uh, massacre. Uh, and actually, I'd go go even further and say, you know, unlike Nazi war crimes, which obviously were on a, a vastly, vastly different scale, but a lot of those were meant to be kept quiet. This was all done wide open yeah. um, uh, in order to be broadcast. And and so I actually, I'm I'm... I'm finding it difficult to figure out uh, what's the right way to handle uh, widespread campus speech or, or statements uh, excusing Hamas's uh, atrocities, pinning all responsibility on on Israel, uh, because I'm I'm worried uh, about also uh, uh, chilling some legitimate speech. But I'll make a couple of points uh, in addition to that. One. We are clearly seeing some egregious hypocrisy. Um, had there been a massacre of any other religious or ethnic or minority group like the one that Hamas committed, uh, and and those uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, statements that I just described, blaming the victims, came out within 48 hours, the administrative uh, repercussions uh, would have been swift and they would have been punishing. Uh, again, uh, we need to be careful uh, about uh, uh, going too far in banning or, or, or chilling legitimate uh, criticism. And by the way, I'm critical of some policies of, of Israel. Um, I'm worried, for example, of insufficient uh, efforts to suppress settler violence. Um, and these are things that should be discussed. They should be debated. But call it anti-Semitism, call it anything you want. Somehow it's okay on university campuses to treat and talk about the October 7th slaughter in a way that I doubt would be tolerated if uh, the targets were a different group. Uh, Matt, a, a thousand percent and something you hit on just a, a minute ago. Again, we're with Matt Waxman, professor of law at Columbia Law School. He is the chair of the National Security Law Program at Columbia, an expert in the law of armed conflict. Matt, you made a point just a, a moment ago. This is all done in public. You know, we think about so much of, uh, you know, neo-Nazis in the United States. They really haven't had a place they could probably go in public. And when they did, it's it's a national outcry. I mean, think Charlottesville. Right? This was, this was a kind of 
widespread, you know, uh, uh, people just condemning that sort of behavior and you know, had the drama with President Trump following that. But but it was it was never something that anybody would have to argue that this is legitimate speech or appropriate conduct or to contextualize uh, the, the the language of blood and soil. You just you just would never see that and do that in this country yet. Here we are on college campuses in particular, it's where you see it the most, um, where this language of river to the sea or legitimizing uh, Hamas's massacre or ripping down signs that say return hostages home, kidnapped, somehow is okay to you know, occur in the public square, in the public eye. I mean, it seems that we've just crossed a, a line here that in my lifetime I, I've never seen. And that seems to be so much of what this uh, outcry is uh, post-October 7th, particularly uh, in, the, in the world of the academy and intellectuals, creating this space for it. I mean, is that is that a is that a fair distinction? I mean, this is where I, when I heard you talk about the public, you know, public space, that's that that's what it meant to me. Right? It, it seems to be okay. You know, one of the things that's uh, pretty shocking about this is uh, I think it's clear that there's been uh, a, an anti-Semitism, a, a level of hostility to Israel that's been festering for a long time. And I, I got to say, I find it astonishing that uh, some groups or organizations would see the October 7th attacks as the moment to, uh, to 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 raise their voices and uh, and celebrate or or seek to justify this kind of attacks, they're they're looking to justify or excuse uh, something that is uh, unjustifiable and and truly in, in, uh, inexcusable in and 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 despicable in in every possible way. You know, there are a lot of things here that can be debated. Uh, we can debate whether Israel's an apartheid state. We can uh, debate whether Israel represses uh, the Palestinian people. I welcome that debate. Um, and I find uh, uh, myself, like I said, I find myself uh, opposing uh, some Israeli policies. Uh, but there should be no debate, no debate that October 7th was unquestionably a war crime of the most evil kind. Um, like I said, committed with genocidal in intent uh, and language pinning sole responsibility on Israel, language uh, that seeks to, uh, as you say, uh, contextualize these uh, acts um, in a way that uh, seems to justify them is, is an attempt to justify the unjustifiable in, uh, in, in an offensive way. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the messages uh, that I've heard so often uh, is that this kind of monstrous Terrorism is is just what happens when uh, a population is oppressed and doesn't have uh, other outlets for opposition. Uh, and no, that's that's just empirically false. This isn't uh, just what happens. Uh, this isn't just what happens. Uh, that's uh, uh, not uh, the uh, the the norm. That's not what's. Uh, what can be expected in modern history. Uh, this is exceptionally barbaric. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually hard to think of modern parallels uh, to this level of sheer sadism. Um, and to compare that to more uh, 
more noble examples of resistance is uh, is preposterous. Uh, the only appropriate moral response is condemnation. Well, that point of view, that the only appropriate moral response is condemnation, was certainly not the way some members of the Columbia faculty responded uh, to October 7th, uh, a widely publicized letter, as I referenced earlier, of 100, uh, uh, I think, more faculty members um, concerned about the protection of, of students pro, uh, uh, protesting in favor of of Palestine using this, uh, Palestinians, excuse me, using this language uh, from the river to the sea and uh, legitimizing uh, and justifying Hamas's attack came from those who are teaching <laughs> in the university. Um, has to be troubling, given what you just said. Uh, probably surprising. I, I'd just love to get your, your your take on that, and then for uh, we'll, we'll move on to uh, what you and a, and a few colleagues have, have done in response. And uh, what I found so gutting was not that you had, as I mentioned before, just a faculty member take this position, but so many choosing to sign on, um, justifying, as you said earlier, justifying the unjustifiable. Yeah, you know, let me just make a couple of points yeah. on that, and then we can talk about the letter that, uh, the sort of responsive letter that I and some colleagues uh, drafted. Um, first, however repugnant one might think that Israeli policies are, I find it morally warped um, that some organizations, some groups, uh, including instructors who are dedicated to the rights of vulnerable groups, um, would not even acknowledge, let alone condemn what is unambiguously a, 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 a massacre, a, a pogrom perpetrated by a, an organization bent on the destruction of another people uh, and against a country that, for example, is the only place in the entire region that you could safely conduct a pride rally or march for reproductive rights. Uh, in addition, uh, some of these statements, as well as uh, as well as tolerance of them, I think uh, reflect some incredible uh, ignorance of the history of the Jewish people, per, uh, in particular, a history of attempts to exterminate it. That history teaches, for example, that the pogroms of the 19th and early 20th century, the Holocaust, and in some cases uh, uh, like those, the response of other countries, including, sadly, uh, sometimes our own, was often uh, this response of uh, to the Jewish people, we don't want you either, right? Sorry, uh, our country's full. Um, so if you want to say that you, we need to look at Hamas's attacks, quote, in context, well, well, that's context too. Uh, and if you know something about that history, you understand why for, for Jews and Israelis, an exterminationist attack like we saw on October 7th is so utterly traumatic and why statements like the ones uh, that Israelis and, and, and Jewish uh, 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 members of our communities read from their peers just 48 hours after the attacks um, felt like the late 1930s and early 1940s again of this idea of no, we don't want you either. 
Matt, part of what motivated, I, I believe, uh, a response from you and a few colleagues, I'd love for you to outline what's in that letter and the arguments uh, that were made. It's not very long. It's just clear. It has clarity uh, to follow some of the points we, we've discussed earlier. But was the plight of students? Uh, as you referenced before, the students on campus who feared for their security did not feel and continue to fear for their security, did not feel that the administration uh, was adequately uh, protecting them. Uh, and what was going on on other campuses, uh, most notably uh, the threats against Jewish students in Cornell, targeting them uh, in their dining facility, students at Cooper Union barricaded in the library as they're being aggressively bullied and threatened uh, by, by students supporting Hamas. I mean, this is absolutely reminiscent of the type of activism, anti-Semitic activism that took place in European universities, you know, about a century ago. Um, and, and it's in that context, Matt, right, where not just the, the, the letter that some of uh, 100 uh, faculty members of Columbia signed, but also the plight of the students on campus that I, that I think made, uh, well, I guess I'm asking, motivated uh, you to take some action with colleagues. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so maybe I'll, I can talk a little bit about what, um, from my own experience, my own observation, my own discussions, uh, many Jewish and Israeli students are feeling on campus, and then we can, and then we can come to the letter. Yeah, please. Um, uh, uh, you know, as I said before, the situation is bad on campuses. It's it's very bad. Um, and what I'm about to say is, of course, not to take away from the idea that we need to be vigilant of Islamophobia, other bigoted actions and speech conduct. Of course we do. Um, and I'll also say, you know, my own law school, my own university administration has been working uh, hard, urgently to address some things like physical safety uh, to make sure. Uh, and, and that's really the most important thing right off the bat, right? Students need to feel safe coming to school and studying. I have had Jewish students tell me that they were afraid to come to class. And we're not talking here about trigger warnings or conversations no. that might be uncomfortable because you're talking about, you know, someone using the language of apartheid as it relates to Israel or Palestinian economic and political rights. You're talking about physical safety on campus because someone is wearing a kippah or a Jewish symbol and they don't feel safe. Right. And, you know, at my own university, I'll say that uh, the administration uh, at my own law school, at the university writ large, um, uh, it is taking those kinds of things seriously, for which I'm I'm grateful. Um, they are taking actions on physical safety. They're taking uh, actions on discipline, um, conveying the message um, that we need to watch very carefully for any kind of bigoted uh, uh, hate speech directed against uh, Jewish or Israeli students, uh, any uh, bigoted or hateful acts directly against them. And, and those kinds of things need to be subjected to disciplinary processes, just like we would uh, or a university would combat other forms of, of, of bigotry. You know, I, 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 as I mentioned before, I spent a lot of time 
these days with Jewish students, Israeli students, and I don't want to overgeneralize. Um, these are diverse groups with a wide range of opinions, wide range of experiences, um, but they feel betrayed for the reasons I said before. They feel hatefully targeted by their peers, and I don't blame them. Uh, I, I will, though, uh, just mention two silver linings. Uh, these are very, very thin silver linings to a, a, a dark cloud, but they are nevertheless uh, uh, some small glints of silver. Uh, the first is that these events have brought together the Jewish community like I've never seen before on campus. Um, here at, at, at uh, Columbia, we have, for example, a, a great Hillel chapter that is led by a, 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 a very, very dedicated uh, executive director who's also taking steps, as uh, are the groups themselves, to make sure that uh, students are well cared for. And I, I, I credit uh, the administrations for uh, taking some actions as well. All steps in the right direction will need to see how it plays out, but certainly some steps in the in the right direction. And I hope that the uh, the bringing together of the Jewish community remains long lasting. Uh, the other thing I'll just say is that amid a lot of despicable behavior and expression on campus, I have also had some outreach from individual members of the community with whom I have no doubt um, we disagree on Israel issues. Um, and those messages from certain individuals have been so kind, so caring that they have brought tears to my eyes. And to those individuals, I'm very grateful. Well, it, it's always good in these moments uh, to have those those cases of, of, of people shining through, uh, though it seems to be um, certainly insufficient uh, these days. But you felt you need to take your own action, Matt, right? That that it was a moment where whatever the administration has done, whatever the community has done, uh, you needed to respond and a few of your colleagues needed to respond. What, what was that? And tell us about uh, kind of what you're seeking to do. It seemed that you wanted to have an articulated message actually clearly outlining what is, you know, what, what context is and where, where, where context doesn't really help at all. And that is, you know, in, in matters of a war crime, I won't put uh, uh, words in your mouth. And second, to be a place where other faculty members at Columbia have a chance to sign on and, and, and be a part of. I mean, if, if you didn't agree with the other letter, there wasn't actually a place, I don't think, I wasn't aware of where they could go. Uh, and and, and what, what you did with, with a few colleagues uh, created that that space. So t tell us about the letter and, and the response you've gotten from other faculty. Yeah, so, so three uh, great colleagues of mine and I uh, drafted our own letter in response to statements that had been publicized that we found uh, uh, either offensive or or deeply uh, deeply troubling, um, and again we can talk about some of that substance as to why we we felt that. But we really wanted to make three points. Uh, first, that at a great university like Columbia, really any university, there needs to be 
robust debate about complex and difficult issues. Um, and that includes things like um, what a, a possible solution, if there is one, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict might look like, uh, who is to blame for the miserable con uh, uh, conditions in Gaza, what the wisest strategy to deal with them might be. A university like ours needs to foster an environment where debate on these important issues can proceed, can happen, without harassment, without intimidation. Uh, the second point we wanted to make is uh, to express just sheer horror that anyone would certainly celebrate uh, the monstrous attacks, um, but also seek to legitimize them um, with, with language like uh, recontextualizing them or, or characterizing them as, a, as just a, a military action. Um, and of course, as we say in the letter, uh, we feel sorrow also for the civilians who are killed or are suffering in this war and they're, they're, they're killed or suffering on a very, very large scale. And, and, and we all need to feel empathy. We need to feel sorrow for that. Uh, but, I, 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 I we think it needs to be, uh, unconditionally uh, uh, condemned, and uh, uh, and there should be no message that uh, begins with anything other than just complete uh, condemnation. And the third point that we wanted to make uh, is one about uh, treating anti-Semitism, treating uh, speech about Israel or Jews. Um, needs to be treated the same way that uh, that other speech directed at uh, at other groups um, would be treated. Uh, and uh, you know, again, we oppose unconditionally bigoted comments or acts directed at Palestinian or Palestinian or, or Muslim students or any uh, any any other group. Um, but in the same way that the university defends other groups from this sort of disgusting conduct. It's essential to do the same for, for Jewish and Israeli students. It seems to be a simple point, one that I would have thought um, shouldn't be controversial, but that was pre-October 7 thinking. What has been the response uh, from other faculty members uh, that were asked to sign on uh, to this letter um, seems to be hundreds uh, when I last looked looked at it. But um, Matt, as a professor of uh, a law, uh, chair of the National Security Program, I think when when you write a or, or co-author of a note that that makes these distinctions, it should carry a lot of weight. Um, we'll talk about the academy and the laws of war in just a minute. But what has been uh, the response from faculty? Uh, at Columbia University, who had an opportunity, I believe, uh, to sign on to to the letter that you and a few colleagues crafted. Yeah, so I, I'm very happy to report um, that it's received overwhelming support from other faculty members. I, I, I within a week, we had uh, about 450, maybe more, signatures to that letter. I, I've I've received a, a lot of supportive. Uh, comments and feedback from uh, across the country, from uh, uh, 
people who I admire both inside and outside the academy. Um, and uh, my three other uh, co-authors of that letter were recently appointed by the, the president of the university to chair a new task force on anti-Semitism. I, I see that as a positive step. We'll obviously need to see what comes out of it, um, but I do see that as at least a, a positive step in the meantime. We're with Professor Matt Waxman, professor at Columbia Law School, chair of the National Security Law Program at Columbia. Uh, we're going to close out this conversation on law of war, war in Gaza, anti-Semitism on college campuses with a basic question, which is where is the academy in the laws of war? <laughs> because if there was even a basic level of understanding and acceptance of the law of armed conflict, I would think, may, perhaps not students, perhaps not the activists, but certainly the faculty uh, would would approach this differently. Is it just outright rejected intellectually? Are there are there pockets of the of of kind of the liberal arts, uh, you know, where they just don't accept the construct that? That is international law and law of armed conflict. Where, where does it reside? How is your actual area of academic study viewed beyond the walls of a law school? Yeah, you know, uh, especially being at a law school, I've been especially, uh, especially disappointed in in some of the reaction I've heard from some colleagues, from from some students. Uh, so let me make. Uh, Two points. Uh, one is uh, a, a, a sort of a, a general point about academia and, and Israel, and the other is an even more general point about uh, academia and the kind of thing that we're seeing uh, in in faculty hiring and and and, and curriculum. Uh, actually, before I get to those points, let me yeah. let me make one other, which is you know a lot of the letters, a lot of the statements that we've seen coming out from opponents, from critics of Israel, again, in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th atrocities, called for essentially university disengagement from Israel, from a cutting off of institutional ties with Israel. Uh, I think that's exactly the opposite of what ought to be done. Um, I think these events show the need to strengthen uh, those kinds of relationships. Um, but I, I in answer to your more direct question, um, I think we've seen a failure to adequately reject a, a moral or legal equivalency between those defending against terrorism and those perpetrating it, uh, between a, a state whose commitment to law underpins its military operations uh, and, uh, and, and versus a terrorist group that openly defies the law, between the IDF uh, that seeks to minimize civilian harm and terrorist groups that deliberately target civilians um, or perversely uh, put their own uh, civilians, the civilians they claim to be uh, defending, uh, protecting in in harm's way. And again, uh, uh, none of this is to say there isn't room for very legitimate debate and even criticism of Israeli conduct. None of this is to take away from uh, the need to uh, feel great empathy for the tremendous suffering going on in in Gaza. But we need some moral clarity 
on on those points. I'm stepping back even more generally. Right. I think I think we are also seeing uh, uh, some of the effects of, for example, an imbalance of faculty, an imbalance of uh, of university curriculum. Um, the problem with the way, for example, the academy teaches about war and and state power, just as uh, examples. You know, not to make this all about my own area, but it's a, a good example. Uh, you know, universities have turned away from serious study of hard power, military power. And this is a big problem, not only for preparing students to understand the world around them, the world in which they're going to, we hope, uh, emerge as leaders, but also if you believe, especially as I do, um, in peace through strength, uh, then uh, we're failing to train, again, the next generation of of leaders. I, I feel like at at law schools, or I observe at law schools, um, an especially acute problem because law, because war is often seen as a sort of antithesis of law, that military power is seen as antithetical to the power of ideas. And remember what I said at the beginning uh, uh, about uh, the law of armed conflict is about balancing military necessity with humanitarian interests. And law schools are overwhelmingly focused on the latter. Um, and there's a problem if the balance doesn't go too far in favor of humanitarian interests. But there's also a huge problem if it doesn't, if if the law isn't sufficiently attentive to to military needs. Uh, the law won't survive that. And so these are some general grievances I have with universities these days. Uh, there are some uh, initiatives that are trying to turn this down. Uh, ter- or sorry, that are trying to turn this around, rather. Uh, your institution, the Reagan Institute, uh, does uh, a lot of programming with universities. Uh, I work with the Alexander Hamilton Society, which is trying to, uh, through uh, chapters uh, on campuses nationwide, to address these kinds of issues. I'm part of uh, a multi-university uh, effort, the America in the World Consortium, uh, that supports uh, scholarship in foreign affairs that's policy-relevant and oriented towards maintaining American leadership in the world. And, and we need more of that. Uh, thanks, Matt. And, and couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, it seems to me that when the Academy uh, abandons the law of armed conflict, um, doesn't recognize uh, legitimate use of force versus a war crime, we're in a really bad place. And, and that's why I, I, you know, there was so much to cover in terms of anti-Semitism on campuses and, and, and response to the Hamas massacre in Israel on October 7th. But why I want to focus when you think about the academy is, is, is what faculty is and is not doing what they are saying um, and, and how we're, we're responding and grateful to you for your response. All right, we're going to move to the lightning round. We're with Professor Matt Waxman. Matt, this is where we get our favorite Reagan speech, Reagan quote, and uh, book on President Reagan. Give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have? Sure. Uh, you know, President Reagan had important things to say about 
uh, the United States as a haven for refugees. Uh, early in his in his administration, he talked about the uh, national responsibility, along with other countries, to welcome and resettle those who flee op uh, oppression. Um, he, in his farewell address, talked about the same. And uh, there have been times that the United States has shut its door to those fleeing persecution, and that if 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 it hadn't opened them. Many of us uh, now fighting anti-Semitism would not be alive today. Uh, and as for my favorite book, uh, that's an easy one. Uh, Will Inboden's, our, our friend Will Inboden's masterpiece on Reagan and the Cold War, The Peacemaker. Matt, thank you for being on the show. Look forward to staying in touch on this. Thanks very much, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.